Hey everyone, this is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Today, I'm honored to chat with Michelle Nishan, James Beard award-winning chef and co-founder of Wholesome Wave, and one of my very favorite people in the world. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, this is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Um, I'm really, really excited to, about our guest today. Uh, he is a chef and sustainable food advocate. Uh, Michelle Nishan. Uh, Michelle, you're impossible to introduce. Just give me a minute and I will try. So I'm going to go through my little list here. You're a James Beard award-winning chef, an author of several books. You co-founded Wholesome Wave, which is an organization that empowers underserved eaters to get better uh, food through affordable access to fruits and vegetables. You co-founded the Chef Action Network, I could probably go on and on and on, but maybe I'll stop there. I I think you're a superhero. As you know, I greatly admire you. I don't think you ever sleep, um, so I want to thank you for for being with us today. Um, Did I I miss anything that you want to add to your bio? Maybe one thing before you start is you're a really good dad. Uh, I I ran into (laughs) your your daughter during Jazz Fest where I live in New Orleans, and she's like so fond of you. And when she talks, you can just tell how much you've inspired her and how, what a great family you have. So um, kudos for that, like, you know, having a, children who really um, talk so fondly of you. I, that's what I'm sure all parents hope for. Well, it's, it's, it's a mutual um, inspiration club. My children inspire me every day. Um, and they, they often are the root purpose behind anything that I do is something, something that, that, that clicked inside of me because of my interactions with them. So, um, you know, it's good stuff. It's good to hear that they speak well of me <laughs> when I'm, you know, when I'm not around. That's good stuff. I like it. That I'll take it. That's great. That's great. Um, so we're going to dive into questions. And, and one of the things that I like most about you is that you're from the Midwest, like I am. And so I, and I know you grew up from, um, with a farming background and a farming family. Do you want to share a, a food memory from that part of your life growing up? Yeah, there definitely there. There are two. Um, one is my earliest childhood memory well, that I can recall, although every once in a while I fantasize that I remember being stuck with a diaper pin when I was in diapers. <laughs> you know, for some reason, that just comes to me from time to time. But I remember I was, and, and it's very vivid because I was trying to fold my pinky finger under my thumb to show my mom I was three. <laughs> uh, so, I re- so I know I was three years old, and I was standing on a step stool in the kitchen and it had to be September, October, because that's when my mom canned tomatoes every year. Uh, so, and and I just remember it it being hot, the smell of tomatoes, and me trying to show my get my fingers together so I could show my mom was three. Her helping me and telling me how big I was. Oh. Um, that that was a good one. And then the other one is not sure of the age, but I had to be somewhere between like five and eight ish. Um, I was. In the melon field, my my grandfather. We used to work his summer in the, his farm in the summertime, uh, and he grew Missouri Moon and Stars watermelons. Mm. And he, for, in the family melon patch, one of our chores was to turn the melons so that they wouldn't flatten and get the yellow patch on the bottom. Um, and and we would always be threatened with punishment if we broke into the watermelons and ate them. <laughs> So my brother Steve and I are like out there in this field munching on this watermelon and my grandpa and my uncle Shorty and my uncle Roy and all these guys come walking our way and we just are like panicked. We're like, they must have seen us eating the watermelon. We dove under all these watermelon leaves and they walked by us across the train tracks near where we were turning the melons over and they went into the fallow field and they started picking up dirt and putting it in their mouth. And I just remember running back after we felt that we were safe to my mother saying, Grandpa's eating dirt. <laughs> and she said, he's testing to see if the field is ready to plant. And I'm like, wow. She's like, you know, yeah, you know, soil has a flavor, you know. So it just those are the two things that 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 I remember that are my very favorite because they they both have to do with food. The one is the farming of food. The other is the making of food. 
Amazing. It sounds like they set you up well for what you do now. Yeah, it, I, all these things came to me later in life. I was kind of, I was kind of an errant jerk when I was in my <laughs> teens. Aren't know? we all? <laughs> Thank God I got my act together. I'm still trying to get mine together. Um, uh, so I, I do want to talk about Wholesome Wave and, and you know, you, you and, and Gus Schumacher and, and others really pioneered this idea uh, of doubling the value of, of SNAP benefits or food stamps um, and, and making sure that, you know, people who, who want to spend money on, on fruits and vegetables can, can do that. And, and a lot of people told you that this was crazy, that it would never work. Uh, so how did you make it work? Well, you know, we, that, that when we really came to it, I was looking at it in 2006, there were health bucks in New York city. Um, and there was a, a doubling program at the Columbia Heights market since market in Silver Spring, Maryland, Crossroads Market mm -hmm. in Columbia Heights. And the Columbia Heights one was in the process of failing because they just couldn't, it was a volunteer market and they were having trouble getting funded. And I, I felt lived in that, that area that, around that time. I lived in Columbia Heights in 2006. So I remember. Yeah. And, and then, so, so I'm like looking at that and, and then, you know, the health bucks, I loved health bucks, but it was very confusing to me because I, I couldn't get my arms around it because it was something like you spend for every five dollars you spend in some type of federal food assistance, whether it's WIC Farmers Market Nutrition Program or SNAP, that you would get two dollars in health bucks. And 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 you know what they would do is they would send out like a whole bunch of these things because they had redemption rates at a certain percentage, but they always had these extra health bucks floating around. So they could never, it was hard for them to distribute because they, what they didn't want to do is overexpose themselves. And I just felt there's got to be a simpler way to do this and also a simpler way to message it. So we, we took kind of a restaurateurs approach and said, Hey, let's just, let's just ha run a two for one fruit and vegetable sale. Spend your snap on anything you want, but if you come over here to this farmer's market and you buy fruit, fruits and vegetables, we double your money. So we're, we're really the first group to just get out there and say double snap, and, and, and we kept the messaging simple. Double up to 10, double up to 20. People knew if they spent 10, they would get 20. Mm -hmm. They knew if they spent 20, they would get 40. And then we could let the markets determine if they wanted to double up to five or 10 or 20 or whatever they would based on their budget. So, so we, we did that. And, and the other thing that we did was, you know, how do we provide the type of evaluation for this that could actually convince folks that this is worth adopting as either a municipal policy, a state policy or a federal policy. So we actually did spend some time. I mean, I mean, you knew well, my late co-founder Gus Schumacher, um, you know, he, he really, he and I worked to identify what really was important to mm -hmm. decision makers, um, around these types of policy issues. And on both sides of the aisle, very few people were interested in health outcomes as a result of, you know, this work. Yeah. That what, what we found from most of these folks was that they were really interested in whether or not people on SNAP actually cared about healthier food or not, what their attitudes were about healthy food. Mm -hmm. And they were very concerned about whether doubling, you know, SNAP for fruits and vegetables would cause the farmer to be in a price taking position if they'd have to take a haircut. Mm -hmm. So we did, we did farmer surveys and we did consumer attitude surveys. And that's how we built our surveillance based on what the decision makers were interested in knowing mm -hmm. to be able to make a decision as to whether they would support it or not. And we made it as easy as possible for the community-based organizations we partnered with to adopt those practices so that we could collect that data and then present it in a way that it made sense. So so that, that was in 2007 that we designed that stuff and started rolling it out. And I'll tell you, you know, um, we thought it was a good idea. Um, we were a little bit worried about it. You know, I remember, you know, going to markets in the early days when we had no money for outreach, wondering, is this really going to work? Was this really as good of an idea as we thought we would? And within a few months, it, it just exploded. And, um, you know, we, I, I remember we, we started in eight markets and we said, wow, God, you know, maybe in, 
maybe in five years we'll be in 50 markets. <laughs> and in like five years, we were in like 450 markets, right. you know, just, it just, it was, it was crazy, you know, just nuts. And, and so, you know, you mentioned the sort of initial skepticism from, you know, policymakers on both sides of the aisles. How did farmers react when you started talking to them about this uh, and market directors? But, yeah. So interestingly, um, well, it depends on the geography. Um, you know, market directors were the most accepting mm -hmm. because they're the ones who would see, you know, no, knowing that they're especially in shifting sands markets which is where a lot of farmers markets back in this time, back in 2006, 2007, were only in two places. Um, they were either in affluent communities or shifting sands communities um, where they're kind of like Columbia Heights, where you have people that can afford to shop at a farmer's market, but you also have community members who could benefit from the farmer's mm -hmm. market, but can't afford to shop there, which is why, you know, back in 2006 at Columbia Heights, the majority of people that you would see at the farmer's market were, you know, people that were more affluent or, or at experimental station market on 61st street in Hyde Park, Chicago, six blocks from president Obama's house on one side and six blocks from some of the worst gang violence in the country on the other side. And everybody that was at the market was coming from, you know, our, our past president's neighborhood. Um, so that, that, that's what, what, what we saw, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of in the early days. And so, but the, what we saw was the, the market directors, especially in the shifting sands markets, were very interested in the program because they were frustrated that people from the less affluent communities weren't availing themselves of the market. And all of their market, none of their marketing outreach was really working. Mm -hmm. So they were very eager to try marketing a two-for-one fruit and vegetable sale. And, and, and that, it, it really was in those early shifting sand markets that, that the concept was proved, you know, pretty handily, you know, because we saw, you know, such incredible uptake, you know, at places like, you know, the, you know, the 61st Street market mm -hmm. that Experiment Station was working at. And then eventually they started moving into places like Inglewood and North Lawndale, very, very <laughs> impoverished communities. Um, where there now are thriving, long-standing farmers markets because they're the only food access, and it's affordable because of the doubling program. So, you know, um, the market directors were there. Farmers were really skeptical. There were sure. some farmers, you know, because so many are conservative, and so many of them are already working really hard and struggling. They're like, you know, I don't know if I want poor people at my market because is that going to scare the rich people away, you know? Um, you know, the, the, you know, certain areas of the country, there are farmers who, who, who were very against food stamps in general, right. um, you know, um, but I, I'm very happy to report that they've converted, <laughs> um, pretty remarkably to falling in absolute love with this program sure. because they saw the impact that it had on their markets. I, the, the average increase in overall market revenue from markets that had been tracking their revenue pre pre accepting snap and incentives or accepting snap without incentives to accepting snap and snap incentives the average increase in revenue is almost 40% 38.6% over 3 years which is significant um to and, and you know aiming at a very concentrated market opportunity people struggling with poverty so you know, it was it was a little tough convincing everybody in the beginning, um, you know, but one, once we actually had some models to prove out, we had some farmer champions who had converted, who had fallen in love with the program, who were skeptical that we could put a farmer on the phone with and say, hey, call Nelson Ciccarelli, sure. <laughs> you know, you know, um, our conservative farmer buddy from Northford, Connecticut, who, who loves this program. And it was really helpful getting other folks to adopt. Absolutely. I mean, and we, I mean, some of us forget that farmers aren't, they're not just producing food, they're, they're business people, and, and they have every reason to sort of be skeptical of, of these new things that they're not sure will work. And, you know, I think tapping into this, you know, sort of new consumer base and convincing them really helps. And, and as you described yeah. with your numbers, you know, the, the number of people coming to those markets really increased. And I, I saw it when I lived in D.C., 
when, you know, I worked at the DuPont Circle Farmers Market and, and some other markets, and when you have those benefits available, you just have more people, and you have obviously a more diverse clientele, which is honestly for somebody who worked at a market for many years like myself, it's more fun. You, you get to talk to yeah, different people. Awesome. It's not just the same white people who come every Sunday with their, you know, reusable bags. It's, you know, a, a lot of different people, and it, was, it made my life more interesting for sure. Um, yeah, and, and speaking speaking to that, you know, the reticence of the farmers because they're business people too. But they're they're business people's running running a business with very slim margins. Absolutely. So so they have a right to be uber skeptical you know? of anything of anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to get back to wholesome wave in a minute, but you know, we we talked about how you grew up in the Midwest, and you know, you're you were a chef. I kind of want to you know have our listeners hear about your journey from from chef to you know what you are today uh, this great champion of of healthy accessible and affordable food all right sure so you know i started um you know started working in restaurants kind of as as a um it was a defense mechanism <laughs> in in a sustainability mechanism in in 1977 you know i right when i was graduating high school in 76 you know, my, my mom and dad fell on hard times. They had to downsize. So my older brother and I basically effectively had to move out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom said to me, you know, you can cook. Cause I, I learned, you know, working on my grandfather's farm all of those years until he passed that, you know, the year before I graduated, we went down to Morley for six weeks every summer and, and farmed, but also canned and pickled and cured and butchered. And, you know, he, he raised pigs, goats, and chickens and, watermelon, sweet corn, and root crop, and then they had the really big, almost full-acre family kind of vegetable plot. Um, but I, I, so cooking to me was just a normal life skill that I, I honestly took for granted until I had to get a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my mom's like, you know, you can cook, at least you'll eat. You get a job in a restaurant, you always get at least one free meal, <laughs> you know, um, and you get a paycheck. So um, I started working in restaurants and in was amazed at how rapidly I was promoted. I started as a breakfast cook in a truck stop in 1977. And by 1981, I was the executive chef of a French restaurant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Amazing. Uh, with no culinary career. But, you know, back in the late 70s, I don't think you were around then. Uh, back in the <laughs> late 70s, um, you know, they, you know, all of the chefs at any restaurant that wasn't a chain restaurant or a fast food restaurant was European. Mm-hmm. And and they despised American cooks because Americans, they would say, couldn't cook their way out of a paper bag. You know, it, you know, most of the people who could cook were, you know, either from Mexico or Central America, Puerto Rico, or they imported people from Europe. Um, a, 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 a young white male who could break down a leg of veal faster than the chef was stunning to them. So I just remember as I worked my way through these restaurants, you know, I, I would start as a prep cook and they'd say, oh my goodness, you know, come over to this restaurant where we're opening up. We'll train you to be a line cook. And I'd say, um, okay, what's that? And they're like, it's $2 more an hour. I'm like, okay, I'm in. And then eventually the day that they were in the weeds and they didn't want to trust me you know, to butcher the leg of veal, but they reluctantly gave me the knife and then they were blown away by how fast I could break down the leg of the veal. I think it was like a week later, the chef came to me and said, I want you to be my sous chef. And I said, what's that? He said, $5 more an hour. I'm like, cool. I'm a sous chef. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Whatever the hell that is. You know? and I just, I just moved quickly um, and just loved food. So, you know, from that very beginning, the one thing that I did notice in that short journey of you know, going from prep cook to line cook to to supervisory position, sous chef, and, and all that stuff. Uh, working with Hyatt hotels as as a sous chef and executive mm-hmm. sous chef, being in charge of sourcing was was how crappy the food was that was coming in the back door. You know, dozens of cases of tomatoes, every single tomato the same exact size, the same exact color of pink, the same exact tasteless mealiness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is easy for me. I'm going to be a chef someday and then I'll just outcompete everybody because I'll just go out to the countryside and find farmers and buy from them. Um, you know, so when I became a chef and 
at the Fleur de Lis, I, I went out to find farmers and I found farmers, but none of them grew specialty crops. And they all thought that I was weird knocking, going in my whites and knocking on people's doors, you know, because I know farmers don't answer the phone if they're out in the field or walking into the field and finding them on a tractor, you know, or, or whatever it might be. And, and I finally found a couple of folks that if I paid them in advance would grow stuff for me. So I remember paying this young couple in Economawak, you know, 2500 bucks up front to grow tomatoes, cucumbers, um, sweet peppers, you know, some, some um, you know, beans, some pole beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I would pay them, you know, when the crop was finished. But I had to go, me and my staff had to go pick it and, and get it because these are soy and oat and, right. and corn, you know. Um, you know, so that, that journey lasted me through like a good, the first decade of my career was what happened to the way my grandparents farmed. So it was a big aha moment for me. This lifestyle I grew up taking for granted actually was extinct. So that was kind of my first advocacy. It's like, how do we undo this? Right. This is not okay. You know, um, and it was during that journey back in 1995 that my son, Chris, was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Um, and that that was the big wake up call for me because um, I, I had established the connection between kind of food and environmental health, the whole organic, non-organic thing, food and economic health, you know, what, why, why, why has farming gone this way? Why have sure. we gone from 20 million to 2 million, all that stuff. But the food and human health thing really happened when Chris was diagnosed with diabetes. You know, so, so, you know, after that, it was like, what do I do about this? You know, we, I remember our doctor saying what you do with Chris's food will have more to do with the health of his long-term outcome than anything else. I'm like, cool, I'm a chef. I can handle that. Right. But within, within, you know, six months, Laura and I are like, wow, we're even though I'm buying all this great local organic sustainable stuff, I'm still doing backstrokes and heavy cream and bathing mm-hmm. in butter, you know, flour and cornstarch and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, you know, so it just it wasn't reconciling. So I in 1997, I did a concept with Drew Neporent, who is a restaurateur who has Tribeca Grill, the Nobu restaurants, mm-hmm, et cetera, mm-hmm. in Manhattan called Heartbeat was a restaurant of well-being based on local organic sustainable, but we had no processed food of any kind. We didn't use white all-purpose flour. We didn't use sugar. Um, you know, we didn't anything that any grains that we used were whole grains. Uh, we didn't use butter. We didn't use cream because that's what the science was saying was bad sure. back in the mid nineties. And, and that, that started my quest in cooking for well-being, which eventually led to the realization that the only people that could afford my cuisine of well-being were people that could spend 30 to 50 bucks on an entree and that, you know, as in part of this journey, the more research I did, the more I learned that they, at the time there were like 30 million Americans who couldn't even afford a, a ripe tomato. And, and there wasn't a business plan for that. There was no business plan for someone who runs out of snap and has two bucks to spend uh, for dinner tonight on a family of four. So it was that energy that led to to needing to found something like wholesome way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that you brought up, you know, there were lots of things you brought up that I thought were interesting, but one is, you know, for you cooking was a normal life skill. And, and, you know, as somebody who, you know, I grew up learning how to cook. You, you just do that when, you know, your, your mom's a stay at home mom. I was very lucky. And, you know, I learned how to can and, and, and do all these things that like not a lot of my peers growing up knew how to do. And, you know, most right. of those kids, you know, were latchkey kids because they had to be. And so I see, you know, a lot of millennials who are, you know, interns or, or for Food Tank or who I've worked with or I've met, you know, on the road. And they're really, really interested in food, but they they don't have those skills and they don't, you know, have that sense of sort of conviviality around food that I, you know, from hearing you talk and, you know, being around you for, for a while now, you know, I think that's important to who you are and what your family does. H- how can you encourage that as, as both, you know, a chef and a cook and also somebody who's trying to, to create access to, to healthier foods? Okay, that, those are, that, that's a great question. I think, Generally speaking, 
you know, um, creating a sense of conviviality or gathering around food um, is it's something that we certainly need to get down to the business of. Um, and, and, you know, I think it, it, it's, it, it's actually probably our best chance at recapturing the appropriate food culture mm. that we actually had when we, when we were a nation of 20 million farmers at, at one point, I think, you know, back in the, just going in after world war two, almost 50% of Americans were classified as farmers. You know, everybody knew that a seed grew into a tomato plant that you can get an average of 20 pounds of tomatoes off a plant. You know, it's like, you know, people knew food, whether they were, you know, growing it in their backyard or they were working on a farm, whatever it would be, you know, they, they were connected to it. And that, that happened to be the time that we were the healthiest. We had the longest life expectancy, et cetera, you know? So I just, and, and it was, you know, this whole, I, I think again, because it was just such a normal part of everyday life that, People took it for granted, and when the when the those first opportunities came along to market convenience foods, that people kind of succumbed to it because, like, wow, I can put a meal on the table and still have time on my hands. Mm-hmm. It's not as good, but you know, I'm going to value the time over the. It just you know, it started allowing the flexibility to to not have everybody at the table at the same time. It allowed the flexibility for one one family member to want mac and cheese for dinner another want to want a chicken pot pie for dinner another it's like you know a la carte cooking instead of saying the family meal tonight is is goat or it's a pork saddle you know or it's chicken Mm -hmm. you know or it's dumplings you know this is this is the meal that we're gathering around tonight you know so it just it, it may it's made it easy for for people to eat whenever they want in the family and which has erased that moment where the entire family comes together. Right. I think the way I try to articulate it to people who are interested in it, because I do believe that there is a gene in every human being that if, if they experience it the right way and in the right environment, it, it awakens inside them kind of like, you know, fire draws people around, you know, who it's, you know, the, the, the discovery of fire and the ability to control it was such an advent in human history that there isn't a human being anywhere on the planet who, if they're chilly, won't stand next to a fire with people they don't even know. Right. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I think food can be the same way. So the way I try to encourage people is, and, and I really do believe in this, um, it, it, my mom said one, one of the greatest ways that you can show that you respect and care for another human being is to feed them, you know? So I think there's an onus on those of us who know how to feed right? to gather others around us who don't know how to feed and infect them with mm-hmm. the wondrousness of the act, you know? Because <laughs> to me, it's one of the most amazing things. I love when people, come, no matter how hard the work can be sometimes. I, I just I just did this petanque tournament in my backyard for a bunch of chefs who were friends of mine. Seventy people. It was ninety one degrees, eighty eight percent humidity, and I grilled whole loins of beef roast, whole sides of salmon, and and whole fish for seventy people wow. over open wood in my fire pit at ninety degrees. <laughs> but you know, everybody loved everything and everybody just came together around mm-hmm. the food and we all sat together at tables throughout the backyard and and it was just it's just amazing you know and 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 you know people there were a lot of people who were guests who aren't chefs they're like you've inspired me to learn how to cook oh, or you inspired great. me to buy a cookbook or right? what's what cooking show should i watch to learn how to do some of the stuff you know it's it's kind of like you know, you can infect people with the desire to want to be able to feed somebody else. Yeah. You know, because it is, it, it is to me, it's like an ultimate act of generosity. For and you sure. are hurting somebody's life by doing it. So that's awesome. That's awesome. 
Uh, I, I mean, I, I want to get back uh, to, to the work that you're doing with Wholesome Wave and, and talk about some of the challenges. But be- before we get into that, you know, we've mentioned Gus Schumacher a few times here. And I, yeah. I want you to describe, if you can, your relationship with him, you know, his sort of place in, in the food movement and, and really just how important he was and what, you know, a tragic, you know, he, he, he passed away last year. And I, I think we were all just so surprised. I had just seen him, you know, at, at the event that you had last year and it was a real shock. And, and, you know, um, we were all sort of, uh, you know, at least people I know who knew him were obviously saddened, but just, you know, they talk about him as such an inspiration. And he was certainly an inspiration to me. I was always surprised that he knew who I was. He'd be like, of course, I get your, your newsletter. And I, you know, it just, it made my day whenever I saw him. So if, oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, well, for one, it was his ability to meet somebody really like somebody and connect with them and then remain actively very actively connected is one of the most uncanny things i ever witnessed in any human being that i ever met um it's so funny because i i went to you know this is you know last summer in in new orleans before just before gus passed and I was at, at the NASDA meeting, the, the mm-hmm. National Association of States Departments of Agriculture. Um, all, all of the commissioners of agriculture from the states and the territory were together. And everyone would be like, oh, Michelle, wholesome wave. How's Gus? You know, I just got three emails from him yesterday. <laughs> um, and then I get another, oh, yeah, I got an email from Gus last week. And then some people, like, you know, every once in a while, Gus will email me. And you could actually rank people and how they rated by how many emails they got from Gus. (laughs) But, you know, they're, you know, people that, that really were like in it are the people who were getting the most emails. And it's just like, and, and they all say the same thing. You know, it's like, I woke up this morning to get coffee, you know, at six o'clock and I got an email from Gus that he sent to me at like five 15 or, you know, I wake up this morning. I got an email from Gus last night at midnight, you know, it's just, he never, ever, ever, ever stopped. And all of it was around all of those emails. I got all of those emails and all of that outreach was all to people who believed and were working Mm -hmm. to make sure that we could, could really get to a food system that benefits everybody that, that farmers we get back to the day where farmers get their fair share. We get back right. to the day where if someone gets out of high school and wants to go to college, you know, they can take an ag course in a junior college and, 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 and transfer to a land grant, you know, and, and, and get a degree and have equitable access to land and have a stable, vibrant, small business opportunity in front of them. You know, you know, that, that people, no matter what their income is, can put a ripe tomato on their table for dinner tonight. Anybody who was working on anything like that, those are the people that he reached out to. And and I have to say, you know, if, if I had a nickel for every person that I met that met Gus when they were, you know, you know, an aide to a politico somewhere, mm-hmm. um, you know, a volunteer at a farmer's market, thinking about what their next career move should be, you know, some young person coming out of ag school, whatever it would be. And now they're a director of this or an owner of that, or a, you know, a mover and shaker, or they're a head of a community based organization because of, because they met Gus, you know, I, I'd never have, if I had a nickel for everyone I met that that was the case, I'd never have to lift my finger to raise another penny for right. Wholesome Way. Right. You know, it's it just, he, he was just, amazing that way and it's it's how we met yeah, absolutely absolutely and i'm very grateful for that obviously um yeah. and yeah and really feel not, like he was a mentor to so many of us yeah and i think you know in in terms of the movement you know um one of the things that gus had this uncanny ability to do that i never saw anybody else be able to pull off is be warmly greeted and engaged no matter where we went mm. by commissioners of agriculture, people from con- Congress, no matter what side of the aisle they were on. 
everybody loved and respected Gus. After Gus, Gus passed, an amb- the ambassador to like Kazakhstan, <laughs> um, you know, emailed me his, God, this is killing me. Um, you know, emailed me a note um, talking, you know, expressing his sorrow, but uh-huh. saying, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've never heard this story because it's something that happened in my world, but, you know, he was assigned to a post in USDA in Western Europe. He said all, all of the USDA staffers that were in Europe had set themselves up in offices and in projects that were in Western Europe because that's where they wanted to live. Mm. And that's where they set their offices up. And Gus is like, all of the opportunity and, and all of the need is in Eastern Europe, you know, and he shook it up way to the chagrin of people and created an incredible amount of con- controversy by going in and making everybody move <laughs> their their posts. You know, it's like we're going where the need is, where the market opportunity is and where we can improve right. the brand of American agriculture. You know, it just, you know, he is all I've told you about all of his wonderfulness. But, you know, this was also a take no prisoners. He used to say right. stuff to me like, you know, uh, you know, Michelle, if they don't listen to us, I'll just go in there and bust their kneecaps. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, Gus, like you would ever bust somebody's kneecap. And then I get this email from this ambassador who told me this story, and I'm like, oh my god! I, you know, I just he's a never badass. got. You know, he just—I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but he just was a badass, and like, there's no getting around it. Yeah, he was a total. How was my Gus impression, by the way? Was it was great. Pretty- it was great. <laughs> Thanks sure. for sharing all that. I, I didn't mean for you to get emotional, but I, I just love uh, hearing these stories. And he was such a great guy. And I think. You know, we certainly need more people like that who can cross these sort of political aisles and be honest and blunt and really genuine and get to the, you know, the heart of these issues and, and you know, make people, do, you know, do the right thing. And, and so he's greatly, greatly missed. Yeah, I, I have a kind of a lesson from Gus, right? You know, because it's what I learned. on. It's like, you know, the way you get everybody to come together is get them to focus on the one thing that they can all agree and align on, you know. Farmers need to do better business, you know, and regardless of what their individual operating core values are, if they can agree to continue to operate under those core values, mm-hmm. but work towards making sure that farmers can do better business, right? regardless of the form, you know, so whether it's small markets, what, you know, equitable access to land, whatever it might be, you know, you can either get people to, to say yes or just as importantly often to not say no. Sure, <laughs> you know? sure. You know, so um, it just, he, he was just uncanny at being able to get people to align. You know, yeah. he could sort through BS and, and, and find a value proposition that could resonate on all sides of the aisle. Sure. So, so Michelle, you know, on, on that note, how, how are you dealing? How is Wholesome Way of dealing with, you know, I'm sure you're very concerned about the upcoming farm bill, you know, yeah. protecting SNAP, you know, ensuring that there's still funding for the food insecurity and nutrition nutrition incentive, you know, how do you use those lessons that, you know, you and, and Gus and others have have demonstrated before? How do you use that, you know, during what is this really, <laughs> you know, a disruptive political climate? Uh, how is that working for you all now? What, what, what are your greatest fears? What are your, what, where do you see the opportunity? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the the signs thus far bode well for Finney. The signs for SNAP overall are as troublesome as they were in 2014. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll those. For Finney, what we've seen is a House version of the Farm Bill pass, bringing Finney to baseline, which is amazing news because <laughs> um, it secures it for a full 10-year Farm mm-hmm. Bill. Um, and, and if they're un, unable to, you know, pass a new farm bill, it would continue to be funded through continuing resolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the house bill, um, version actually names it after Gus. Oh. Um, the Senate passed a very similar bill, bringing it to baseline. I think the two there, I, one's like 275 million and one's like 285 million or something like that. 
um, instead of 100 million. Um, it brings it to baseline. So the House and the Senate, unlike last time, are on the same page for the amount of Finney. So whatever farm bill passes, I'm confident Finney will be in it. But we're in the same intractable political mm. position on SNAP that has existed for multiple farm bills past. And that's that, you know, the House wants to slash it um, in some form or another, and the Senate wants to preserve it <laughs> um, in some form or another. So it's really hard to see how it's going to shake out. Um, my fear are my, the, the thing I'm mostly focused on and, and that we're mostly engaging with folks on it isn't Finney um, as much as it is the work requirements because the work requirements are already onerous. Right. Um, they're very, very expensive for states. Yeah. And the money that they put in for work requirements for the states is about, you know, a half a percent of what it actually takes cost to train somebody from one skill competency mm -hmm. into another one that's relevant to an available job. Mm -hmm. The job centers are sporadically spaced throughout states right. without public transportation for people struggling with poverty to get to. It's just that the work requirements it's, thing is tough because, it, yeah. you know, the estimates would would have it at, at 2 million people immediately falling off of SNAP that are SNAP eligible, you know? So, so, you know, that, that, that's the thing that, that, that well, really bothers me yeah. the most. And, uh, and I, I learned to stay away from a lot of the other stuff in the farm bill because sure. these are big, scary issues. And it's, we're focused on providing affordability to the most underserved of Americans. Right. So we're, we're focusing on the things that do that. So, so let me ask you, and this is something I struggle with because, you know, I'm, you know, I spend a lot of time being angry at, at, at politicians. I don't understand why they don't understand these issues of access and affordability. I mean, not all of them grew up, you know, in, in rich communities. Not all of them went to prep school. I don't get how they don't understand why, why SNAP benefits are so important and why they put these sorts of contingencies on everything. Yeah. I, so I, I, do you have any insight into that? Because I can't well, wrap my head around it. Yeah, you know, I ponder on it um, often. And I just hear the things that people say, you know, and I, you know, I travel 40 weeks a year and, right. you know, we're, we're operating and, you know, with, we have partnerships in 49 states, you know, at urban, rural, you know, suburban, et cetera. You know, so you hear, hear you, you hear the darndest things, you know, when you're out on the road. And I, I think there are a couple of things. One is that um, I haven't met anybody on either side of the aisle who doesn't understand that there are poor people and that when people are really struggling with hard times, you know, um, if they have worked, they deserve a leg up. There are less people in that same cohort who understand that there are people that are born into the condition of you're mm -hmm. never going to get a decent paying job ever. Um, you know, you're going to be working at minimum wage and, and, you know, frankly, um, you know, um, you know, just the cost of employing people, the amount of people that their work around, um, to providing insurance to people working, 32 or more hours a week is to make sure you schedule everybody for 31 hours. So there are people that are working 62 hours at two different jobs. They're working 62 hours a week and they have no access to employee to employer sponsored healthcare, you know, because, you know, these businesses have found it too expensive yeah. to yeah. provide the healthcare. So, you know, it doesn't take long to multiply 60 hours times, 726 an hour times, you know, you know, times, you know, 52 weeks and, and, and understand why we have, you know, families of four trying to live on an income of, you know, under $30,000 a year, yeah. you know, and, you know, try to do that in the South Bronx, you know, right. it's, or you in know, New Orleans or anywhere else in this country, you, yeah. you just can't so, do it. So there, there is a lack of, of, of civic awareness in our civic leaders. Yeah. And, and there, you know, there is a small cohort 
who, you know, honestly believe that if somebody's poor, it's their fault. Mm-hmm. They must be crazy. And and it just and they they live in communities where, you know, they've seen the kids from the other side of the tracks who are always getting in trouble and calling them a bunch of lazy bums. But they've never said, let me get to the root cause of it. Why don't I get together with one of these families at their dinner table mm-hmm. one night mm-hmm. who are in my district and could be a constituent of mine, you know, and really sit down with them at their family table and understand what they're facing and why it's this way. Is it an education problem? Is it what? What's the deal? None, none of our very few of our elected officials on either side of the aisle um, actually have the courage to do that. Yeah. Actually have, you know, the deep-seated sense of civic responsibility to do that. When they go home and they have dinners with their constituents, they're having dinners with the ones who raise the money to put, most money to put them in office. They're going to, to the constituents, you know, who went to high school with their their father or mother or to college with, you know, it's just you, you never see them uh, unless it's like, you know, Jim McGovern or Marcy Captor sure. or someone like that. You rarely see somebody going to the other side of the tracks and understanding how everybody in their district is just trying to get by to feed their family. Yeah. Yeah. The issues for them. So that that's what's missing. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a, a, we're not holding our, our leaders responsible to really understand that they're responsible for a hundred percent of their district, you right, know, and, right. and, and, and really having a, a deep, doing the deep dive and understanding why things are like this in certain parts of the district and why they're like that in other parts of the district, that's, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned lack of civic awareness and lack of courage. This is, you know, it, I don't think it's only the politicians who are at fault for this. I feel like I, I'm seeing in a lot of people this lack of, of awareness, you know, not willing to understand, you know, what other people who are, you know, whatever, less fortunate than, than, than they are, what they're going through. And it, that's, you know, I don't know how to change that, you know, Food Tank, where, you know, our whole mission is stories of hope and success in the food system. So we try to put those out. We interview people like you. But when there's sort of that lack of courage from folks themselves who, you know, they're like, I've got mine. I, I don't want anyone to take it away from me. How do we change that? How do we, you know, especially in this really tumultuous time in, in, in the U.S. where things are, you know, we, we don't know who who's on which side and that kind of thing. How do we we get people more interested in in helping you know their sort of fellow person out and understanding the challenges those people face and that it's yeah, not their I, fault? You know, yeah, I I do not know, um, Frank, because I have I have I've been to places where friends of mine have introduced me to groups that love the idea of helping people struggle with poverty, the two for one fruit and vegetable sale until they found out that it was going to help black families Jesus. or until they found out it was going to help yeah. Hispanic families. When I, when I look at the, the people who are in office now, the people that are voting them into office now, there's a lot of intractability there. But when I look at the millennial marketplace and the Gen Z marketplace, right. and I see the values that you know, and, and we're talking about two markets where you combine the two together equal close to 140 million Americans. You know, these kids are coming online caring about organics, yeah. caring about what food does to the environment, caring about plastic usage, caring about poverty. You know, there, there are these huge movements of students on college campuses, affluent students who, who are disgusted that 36% of college students are food insecure, right. 20% to the extent that can be considered hunger. You know, we've got, I, I think that's where the hope is. You uh, know, absolutely. somebody who's lived their life convincing themselves that anybody who's poor is lazy, there's nothing that Michelle Nishan or Danny Nirenberg yeah. can say that's ever going to change that person's mind or heart. It's set, you know, but... I think when we look at the millennials and the Gen Zs that are coming on, 
the the power of the flow of information on the internet provided that it's not not being controlled by Russian hackers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right. the power of information on the internet and, and the speed at which travels and, and how expert these kids are at, frankly, we, weeding out bullshit on the internet, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of hope, you know, there. And, and I do believe that we're going to see a significant paradigm shift sometime within the next decade in our political system because these kids, you know, they, they would rather have one pair of jeans made from organic cotton than five pairs of cheap jeans so that they can shop once a week at a farmer's market for some of their food. You know, it's like, you know, these are kids who are strapped for money, but they're making really thoughtful decisions. So I think that's where the hope is. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've I've said this before, but one of the best parts of my job is getting to work with, you know, people much, much younger than me. And I, I do feel hopeful and I get to meet them everywhere and have them on my staff who are awesome and you know are way smarter than I am so I I feel the same amount of hope and I think that's a really good point to end on thank you so much for your time today it's always such a pleasure to talk to you Um, if folks want to find out more information about wholesome wave they can go to wholesomewave.org Michelle any other things you want to this is your plug time any any things coming up that you want our our listeners to know about yeah it's just it's so funny because you know you're talking about sometimes either the, the you know the lack of courage thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to call it sometimes the overwhelmedness when people see mm. themselves as one of 350 million people you know whether it's helping somebody struggling with poverty you know uh, being more actively engaged in your community to fix that or whether it's even just making the decision to buy something local or something organic mm-hmm. it's like you know what I'm one person I'll never make a difference you know I just remember having a conversation with a woman once who said that. And I said, you know, she's like, you know, I want to feed my kids organic, but, you know, I can only afford maybe one thing, you know, but if I'm only buying organic apples, I'm not making a difference. I said, well, imagine what would happen if just 30 percent of Americans tomorrow decided they were only going to buy organic apples, the apple Apple agriculture in America would change overnight. Absolutely. It it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So whatever the issue is that's ogling someone or that they feel paralyzed about, they really, really should understand that any decision that you make that's in a good direction is going to have a profound impact. It's just a matter of telling your friends and getting them to come along for the journey. That's awesome. Thank you so much again, Michelle. I adore you. Thanks again. Uh, Always a pleasure, Danny. Good to hear your voice. You too. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. It would mean the world to me if you could give us a five-star rating on iTunes, share this podcast with your friends, and email me any suggestions at danielle at foodtank.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Food Talk.